It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon and welcome to Talent Talk. It's Tuesday, it's one o'clock Pacific Standard Time, that is. And we are live here and I have two fantastic guests lined up for today's show. And I'm really, really excited to kind of to dive in and, and uh, you know, think about what makes them tick. And, the, and this show is really about understanding what talented people are doing. What are their secrets? What are they thinking about? What are they reading? Right? What are the, how might they, what they're doing inspire us to, to go and do, do more for ourselves? And also how are they handling talent, whether it's their own talent, the people that work inside their organizations, or maybe as, as our first guest is, uh, is uh, going to talk about how are they impacting the talent world uh, with their solutions, with their ideas. Um, and that's really what this show is about. I mean, I've been really, really fortunate. We've been doing this show for many years, and there's been so many wonderful, fantastic stories that have come out of this. In fact, I put a lot of those in my first book, The Power of Company Culture. You can find that wherever you buy your books online. And love to have you check that out. We also want to make sure that you uh, don't miss a show. So if you're listening, make sure wherever you have found this, if it's on iHeart, if it's on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts, go ahead and subscribe right now. That way when this show's ready or the next show's ready, let technology help us be lazy. Let, it'll just let you know when, when it's ready. You won't have to even think about it. Also, you can go to talenttalkradio.com and subscribe there as well. We've started this about uh, maybe about a year ago, and it's been really, really fun and successful in that we are live tweeting the show as we go along as well. So Angela, my social media uh, coordinator, is taking all the best one-liners, links to the uh, guest profiles, maybe book links, anything that we... We mentioned that maybe you might want to remember or couldn't jot down if you were listening uh, in the car or something. You can go to Twitter at PeopleG2 or follow the hashtag Talent Talk, and it'll be there for you. We also love when you ask us questions, make guest suggestions, argue with us, whatever you like to do. That's what Twitter's for. So go there now, and uh, you can uh, be a part of the conversation. All right, today's guest uh, will include uh, Jerome uh, Turnick. He's the founder and CEO of Smart Recruiters um, and also um, Hiring Success Company. So if you don't know more about them, we'll get into them in just a second. And then my second guest after the commercial break will be Mark McMillian. Uh, He's the founder and CEO of uh, McMillian uh, Leadership Associates. So he'll be joining, like I said, the second half of the show. But let's go ahead and bring in my first guest. Jerome, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Chris. Absolutely. So, 
Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about who you are, what's important for us to know about you, and of course, you know, what does smart recruiters do for anyone who's maybe been under a rock and doesn't know who you guys are? Cheers to that. So my name is Jerome Turnick. I'm the founder and CEO of Smart Recruiters. Um, I was actually born in recruiting, or so it feels. I've been an entrepreneur <laughs> in recruiting uh, and recruiting tech for a long time, did a recruiting agency, then one of the first ATSs uh, back in the 2000 when the internet just appeared and founded Smart Recruiters in 2010. And we, we are a talent acquisition suite. We're the generational successor to that uh, old ATS that you love to hate. And we help companies drive hiring success, which is the ability to attract, select, and hire amazing talent on demand. That's what the CEO expects from all of our TA leaders. We help them deliver that. And I know certainly you know, Smart Recruiters has been around for a long time, but you know we really noticed in the marketplace, we, we work with a lot of different ATSs and systems and programs. And uh, there's been this sort of, from our perspective, a little bit of a wave, right? This like a lot of people have been, talking to us about your, your system and excited about your system. And we see the ebbs and the flows. We see people complain about certain systems and excited about other systems, but certainly it feels like smart recruiters has been on a, on a big uptick or riding a pretty good wave. I mean, that's why a lot of our clients have been, Hey, go get, go get integrated with them, which we've been doing. And, but I, I guess from your perspective, I kind of want to understand, you know, what's changed over the last year or two? What, what, do you think you guys are delivering a better product and service? Have you made some fundamental change? Is it just my perception uh, of, of the industry or, you know, what's kind of going on and make, making you guys excited right now? You know, that's what they say, right? Overnight success, 10 years in the making. <laughs> um, I think there's no magic recipe. I think you got to just be focused on what you do and what you deliver, be true to yourself um, and focus on your customers. And at Smart Recruiters, we are focused on delivering hiring success as an outcome. Um, so, of course, we think of the features and the functionalities and the products and how we build it and how we implement. But most of all, we actually measure ourselves by the success that our customers uh, are achieving by their ability to hire better talent uh, in time as they had before. And the core pillars here really of hiring success uh, are candidate experience, how you attract and engage candidates, which speaks to all the marketing, advertising activities that you do as part of recruiting. Second, hiring manager engagement, which talks about the collaboration and how you actually drive better hiring decisions. And of course, third, recruiter productivity. So how you give recruiters one platform where finally they have all of their tools and processes and suppliers, everybody pre-integrated. So they have one system of record, they're in control, they can do a good job. And around those three pillars of candidate experience, manager engagement and recruiter productivity, that's the recipe for hiring success. That's what we drive to uh, to customers. And indeed, I think what's, what's been happening to, uh, for us over the last few years, is actually that focus on delivering outcomes and telling TA leaders that, you know, your destiny to be measured by cost per hire and time to feel like faster and cheaper and be commoditized, that is not your destiny. You are driving massive impact on organization. Like last time I checked, who you hire defines everything in a company. And that's the responsibility of the TA leaders. We're helping elevate that function where it belongs as a true business partner. So do you think that some of the changes that we've had because of the pandemic, uh, maybe people have, you know, maybe need more of those tools all in one place. They can't, you know, hodgepodge it and be in an office altogether. Do you think that the, the, that idea of going home has made it more important for recruiters and more important for your users to have everything in one place? Uh, or is this just maybe like you said, a culmination of 12 years in the making? 
No, clearly uh, this past year uh, has accelerated the digitalization of recruiting. I mean, we've kind of financially, we've had the best uh, year ever in terms of new sales. And, and what has happened is really that uh, TA leaders are like, okay, now is the time. Like for the last 10 years, the one thing that TA leaders did not have is time. They were busy filling wrecks, right? Now they have the time. And not only they have the time, they have the urgency uh, and they need to transform because candidate volumes have quadrupled and their teams in most cases have been cut in half. So mm. how do you actually prepare for that, leverage that? And you can, and that has accelerated the pace of, uh, of transition, the pace of transformation. Uh, we just went live last week uh, with H&M, you know, the closing brand, 160,000 employees. Back in April, when we signed the contract with them, uh, they were like, yeah, all our stores are closed. We need to hurry up. Now is the time. Five months later, they went live in 77 countries in one day, kissing goodbye to their old ATS system, setting up the new um, a, a new standard for collaboration, for better hiring in a remote world, dealing with volumes. I think this uh, this trend of now is a good time to actually step up and accelerate your digital transformation really has been resonating uh, with large enterprises. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I uh, have for years have been advocating for remote work and, and saying how much better it's been for my organization and, and other organizations that I work with or consult with. But there was always this hang up, right? There was always for some people, they just didn't get it. They didn't want to take the leap. And here the world kicked him in the butt and said, you're going to have to do it, right? You have to do remote. And so many people found out it was better for them. It was better for their employees. They're going to keep it. They're going to keep some part of it. And it sounds like for your clients, they maybe knew your solution would be the best thing, but they were too busy to go and implement it all the way. So they actually had to get, again, kicked in the butt. And they had to slow down. Uh, or at least the world slowed down for them so that then they could figure it all out, get it all figured out to speed up. And I'm just wondering, it's like, you know, how do we, how do we get people to, to take this lesson, right? Where uh, it, It's happening. It's happened in my whole, whole business career where they run around and they're too busy to do things that will help them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they do it though, it makes such a big impact, right? So do you think we'll take some of this lesson? This is the only time I've ever had a major, world event in my lifetime, right? No world wars in my lifetime. No, no giant event. This is the biggest thing to a giant event. Do you think we'll take some of this wisdom and and use that going forward? I think we definitely will take uh, some of that wisdom on on many counts. First, I think we'll um, embrace uh, technology as a way to support the way we work. Um, as opposed to resisting it. I think technology is really here to help elevate functions. We talk a lot about automation and uh, uh, we have uh, several layers of automation inside the platform. We we have a chatbot that automates recruiting. We have a matching assistant that read resumes and discover, helps you discover. And sometimes people are like, "Mm, I'm a bit scared, you know, is this going to replace me? No, actually, if you're not busy reading a thousand resume per day, maybe you could become a good advisor to those candidates and to those managers. So I think we're, we're going to take that as a lesson uh, of uh, uh, that technology can be leveraged to augment our capabilities and to make our jobs more interesting at large. Second, 
um, as you say, I think remote is here to stay. Like there is no, there is no coming back. You're not going to bring your employees back to where they started mm-hmm. last year. So you are remote. You have to get used to it. That means your processes have to work remotely. That fosters better collaboration, more, more, uh, more transparent processes, and and more professional processes like the water cooler hiring decisions from a hiring manager who forgot to give you feedback on the interviews that they had last week cannot happen anymore because there is no water cooler. So you got to have a proper process and a proper collaboration. Uh, and it, it's really, I think, going to make things, whether you're, like I said, a hybrid or whether you're fully remote or you know, even if you do go back, I mean, not all companies, not all businesses can be remote. I'm, you know, I've, I think I've said it a few times in this show, if you're making wine, you're going to have to be in the vineyard. If you are, you know, creating an airplane, you're probably going to have to be in a hangar. So there are things that do need to be, there, but not everyone has to be. And so, um, there may be some level of this connection and um, it kind of makes me think too, I, we've noticed a lot of people really doing well with changing the communication styles. And what I mean by that is not just sitting in an office and or talking at the water cooler, like you mentioned, but when you use programs like Slack or maybe use something like yours where people can work asynchronistically, right? So they can go in and they can add information into a thread that someone can come back to. They can research it. They can look at it. They can get caught up. They can, you know, learn as opposed to if you weren't in that room, when that one conversation happened, you didn't know about it. Right. And it's now gone forever as well. Right. Unless your company actually takes good notes, which very few do. So do you, do you think this is also sort of adding to maybe the the brain power and the legacy knowledge of an organization by using, you know, your platform? Yeah, I think, you know, take a simple example that I was referring to earlier, which is interview scorecards which is a really a, the very basics of recruiting is what are we looking for? How are we going to decide who's the best candidate? Simple questions, right? In the past, a lot of that was undocumented. It was like somewhat arbitrary decision, full of bias uh, and discrimination um, and uh, full of hiring mistakes as well. Now, actually, because we are not together, we've had to document. Oh, yes, I interviewed Chris yesterday. And based Mm -hmm. on the six criteria, I think he'd be a really good host for a radio show. And actually, he has, you know, good skills in this and he could definitely do a good job. I'm not so sure about that. Like this has to be documented and shared with the team so that uh, a better decision can be reached uh, uh, through collaboration. And that actually uh, was uh, uh, that was not happening before, and so yeah, I do think that being remote forces better practices and um, and better standards. Yeah, well, you know, I, I imagine it's a lot like uh, somebody who's riding a horse their whole life, and and they're used to that, and suddenly cars come around, right? And they might say, well, it's more it's more comfortable sitting on my horse, and I like my horse. Um, and, and the car is nice and all, but there isn't really roads yet. It's kind of bumpy. It's hard. It's not, not reliable. So imagine we're a little, we're, we're somewhere in that transition time. So are there things that you think we need to do that might, you know, my little metaphor here, you know, might give us great roads and might give a, all the infrastructure, are the things that we need to do to make this stick, right? So that we don't sort of fall back into, I guess, riding the horse, which is in this example, the traditional office. Yeah, I think you need to uh, uh, embrace uh, modern technologies here. You need to actually, you know, it's like, hey, well, uh, our kids are going to school via Zoom. Uh, Well, what if there was no Zoom? Well, if there's no Zoom, there is no school. Okay, great. 
Well, apply this to a recruiting, for example, to HR at large, right? Like the system you are using, define what you can achieve. And uh, last time I checked, 90% of organizations are still running on an applicant tracking system that was designed in 1999, where the problem we were trying to solve was to automate the file cabinet. Like take paper resume and, oh my God, there's the internet. Let's let's have them in a system and, tr- and track those, those applicants. Like it, when mm-hmm. you think about it, even the name is wrong. Applicant tracking system, right? It doesn't say hire amazing people system, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think yeah. we really do have here an opportunity to step up, modernize your technology and embrace platforms that are going to make your life so much easier. Right. No, I, I love that. <laughs> it's a great example. Well, you know, I think the other thing too is maybe like talent leaders, uh, are going to have to help us uh, and help us maybe by being change agents into this. Uh, how do you think they can do that? How can they revolutionize this sort of function uh, inside their organizations? I think there's a couple of things that tier leaders can do, um, some more intuitive than others, right? Um, one, um, change the metrics that you measure yourself on. As long as you get measured by time to fill and cost per hire, guess what? As a CEO, I'm going to minimize your time to fill and I'm going to minimize your cost per hire. You're going to run faster and cheaper than ever before. So stop measuring yourself by those measures. Instead, embrace that impact and value add measures, which you should be looking at, which are the hiring velocity, your hiring budget overall, and your net hiring score, which speak to quality. We can talk more about those metrics, but change the metrics, change the conversation. Second, uh, in this time, uh, take ownership as a talent acquisition leader. Take ownership of internal mobility. Historically, internal hiring has been somewhere between HR and recruiting. Recruiting is about external and internal. It's kind of not so clear who does what. And employees complain that it's easier to find a job externally than inside the company. Well, we need to change that. We need to change that for diversity purposes. We need to change that for redeployment purposes, for retention, for all, all the right reasons. So as a recruiting leader, say, hey, you know what? I'm going to step in here. I'm going to start hunting and farming our talent internally to make sure that there is a free flow of talent internally and we maximize opportunities for our employees. That's a step that tier leaders can take right now. And with that, I would name the third one, step up for diversity. Uh, We recently published the 10 principles of diversity hiring, best practices, how to actually deliver better diversity outcomes. Yes, of course, there is a lot that the company can do in culture and representation groups and equity pens. So there's a lot of things you can do with your employees. But I'll be honest, diversity starts with hiring and you need to step up and own diversity, like be the real partner to the chief diversity officer as a tier leader. Yeah, and we, we've talked a lot about this show, some of the things that we've done and, and, and really, really focus on diversity of thought. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about who do we have, right? And what are the strengths that we have? And then what are the things we don't have? What are we missing? And then we try to go out and hire for the things we're missing for. And for us, that has been the turning point. That has been the solution in making a more diverse company. Because if I say, well, go hire more of X or Y or Z, then that adds a certain level of like, it's complex and it doesn't feel right. And it's like, you know, is this just some quota thing as opposed to I'm trying to find an awesome person who has the strengths that we don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for us, that's been, and I don't know, you know, we're not a, a mega fortune 500 company. So their approach certainly might be far different uh, than an organization like ours, you know? So do you think there are certain things? Uh, Cause I haven't read that, that uh, document that you put out, but are there certain things that are sort of universal or is it like, 
you know, uh, very specific to companies? They need to find what works for them. Um, I mean, every company can adapt, but the basics are, are simple, right? It's like, hey, start with a diverse hiring team, right? So your teams, the people making the decisions need to have a ah, good representation, right. right? Right. Second, make sure they are, they are aware so that all the people involved in recruiting actually do have awareness training so they don't discriminate. Uh, write good neutral job description. Uh, over uh, over invest in sourcing for underrepresented groups, right? The, the the majority will come to you. Don't worry. Just so spend <laughs> your money in investing right. in underrepresented group. Make sure you you have no bias in screening. So check your screening process properly. That it doesn't include include bias and discrimination. Use technology for that if you need to, and then uh, have clear uh, uh, scorecarding interview process so that you don't um, you don't uh, discriminate at interview. In summary, that's what the the ten standards say. Add to that an inclusive process, an inclusive mm-hmm. onboarding as well. And internal hiring, fair internal hiring is an amazing way to drive diversity because if you're in the minority, guess guess who gets promoted? Not you, right? But if internal hiring is now a fair and internal process where anybody can apply to any job, then suddenly you have equal chance than anybody else to actually get that promotion. So Right. And those are all fantastic uh, suggestions. I certainly hope people will check that out. I mean, we've had some other guests talk about things like, you know, removing names and details off resumes, like putting people through processes almost just completely uh, agnostically, right? And so you don't really know until the very end what who they are, what yeah. they may be. And then that, that's one approach. And I'm, and I'm certainly not advocating for one or the other, but we've had so many, the point is there are so many different ways you can think about doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had uh, uh, people say, well, we definitely put quotas on then on the pool of applicants, the, the shortlisted pool. And then after that, then it's sort of, you know, allow the managers to decide who's best going to fit our company and things. So at least you're giving people the opportunity. Cause I think that's one of the largest areas where companies realize they're struggling is the people who they want to hire to meet their diversity goals, aren't getting through the initial screen, aren't even getting into that, the real conversation. And so you just keep delivering the same person to the hiring manager over and over and over and over again. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I actually, I saw a little, uh, a little cartoon on the internet the other day that made me smile. And it, it was two people from underrepresented communities saying, we don't want to work for their stupid company. And they call this a sourcing problem. Right. Yeah. Right. Actually they are candidates out there. They just don't want to work for you. So you, yeah. like, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I, I'm wondering too, you know, have, have, as far as this whole year has gone in 2020 and certainly most of it has been dominated by the pandemic and things like that, but have you seen communication sort of change uh, maybe between recruiting teams and hiring managers and applicants uh, has that has that begun to shift at all? Yeah, it, it has. Um, I think the communication between hiring managers and recruiters uh, is becoming much more of a partnership uh, as it should be. Uh, and not like, you know, I'm the manager, I'll wait for my five legs, <laughs> sheep, you know, or purple scroll and better be good. And I for, I'll give you feedback if I have time. Right now we're actually like, because of the nature of how hiring is happening, uh, we're seeing that partnership um, come together. Um, the candidate communication though uh, is actually getting worse. Uh, uh, candidate volumes have quadrupled. Most people never hear back when they apply to jobs. Um, and we got to embrace that, like at least acknowledge that you've received the resume and, and, and kind of treat 
you know, last time I checked, an applicant is still a human being. Right. So treat them like as such. Nothing more. Like it's not even about candidate experience. It's about decency, right? Um, so make an effort, make a point. Like as a, and we all got into HR because we like people. So just go back to your roots, to your values, and actually answer to those applicants um, as human beings. So two final questions for you before we go here. First one is, is, is there a book that you're reading or one that you've been suggesting this year people take a look at? Yeah, absolutely. I actually wrote a book. Um, so I'll plug it here. It's called Hiring Success, um, How uh, CEOs Hire Best Talent. Um, and it's a very good read for executives and TA leaders. If you give this to your CEO, I guarantee that you won't be measured by cost per hire and time to fill anymore. It's actually CEOs know that who you hire defines everything in an organization. And I'm trying to help you make a case for them to invest in recruiting. Uh, and the best way to reach us is uh, the smartrecruiters.com uh, on the website or the hiringsuccess.com uh, uh, for the book and, uh, and the guidelines. And you can, of course, <clears throat> always connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to accept connections and help in any way I can. And that was my second question. So you are a mind reader. But uh, thank you so much, Jerome, for being on the show today. I've learned a lot about your company. And I hope that our guests will, or excuse me, our listeners will certainly uh, check you guys out. And uh, it sounds like there's a lot to offer. So thank you so much for being on the show. And hopefully we have you come back at some point and give us an update on all of everything that you're doing. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. All right. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. And then we'll bring in my uh, second guest, Mark McMillian. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk radio show. In case you missed my first guest, uh, you know, you can check them out by uh, making sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. That could be on TalentTalkRadio.com. That could be on iTunes, iHeartRadio, uh, Spotify, wherever you get it, you want to make sure that you, uh, you find us and that you can listen to the show whenever you want to. So there's so many great shows and we've had so many guests over the years. Uh, in fact, as I mentioned, uh, so many of those stories end up my first book, the power of company culture. You can check that out wherever you buy your books and all of our really smart comments, uh, and any links to books and profiles and all of that, we will stick on, uh, Twitter. So follow at people G2. We live tweet um, that right now, and uh, we omit anything dumb we say. We only we only post what the really smart and intelligent things we say. So um, that'll be a good little recap for you if you want to check out uh, anything going on there. But let's go ahead and bring in my next guest, uh, Mark McMillian. He's a principal of McMillian Leadership Associates. Um, so, hey, Mark, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks, Chris. Great to be here. 
Yeah, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, kind of your, maybe a little bit of your your journey, kind of where you started, how and how did you end up where you are today, and and about maybe tell them a little bit more about what you do uh, as, far, as far as your day-to-day job. Sure, glad to. So I grew up in a small town in West Virginia, a wide spot in the road, but then I went to West Point, the United States Military Academy, graduated, spent 22 years on active duty as an officer, got to do so many cool things, lived in Germany, bunch of states in America. My last assignment was with NATO in Norway. Took a couple tours of Baghdad, Iraq. That wasn't a lot of fun. I got to interact with huge numbers of people. Got to lead soldiers, got to lead some mixed teams, especially in NATO of uh, civilians and multinationals, which was a fascinating experience. And then I retired. When I retired, I wanted to, I wanted to work for myself. I've been part of that, that massive bureaucracy for so long. I, I wanted to be <laughs> part of, uh, called my own shots, so to speak. Right. I did, McMillian Leadership, and what we do is I bring my, uh, my background to bear, my military uh, experience. I also was able to teach at West Point. I, I did a lot of military leadership instruction, and since I retired, I taught a couple semesters at West Virginia University on leadership theory. But I bring that together to help companies grow their leaders. I help make leaders better. I don't make somebody a leader, but I think leadership is a uh, set of skills that they can learn grow, develop, and make better. And that's what I do. I think that's my calling in life is to help make other people better. Well, I appreciate uh, everything that you've done and not only as uh, serving our country, but but I think in focusing on leadership, because that's that's the thing that, you know, we can learn from, uh, from, from the military, from uh, I think people like yourself who've made a career out of leading others by bringing people together. Um, and, and yet there's sometimes a disconnect between the private world and, and, and the military world. I don't know if it's lost in translation. I don't know if it's just, um, it, it's hard to understand the, the, two, the two sides that have a hard time getting on the same page. Once they do, I notice it's sort of magic, but yet in the beginning, it's sort of hard to, uh, to get that. Do, do you think there's a reason for that? Is it just, we don't know, we don't know, or, or is there something else to it? I, th- I think there. I think one of the biggest obstacles are honestly our movies, and I love a good war movie. <laughs> but the way the military is portrayed in the movies, you know, the kind of the, you know, follow the orders or get put in front of a firing squad. Their leadership in the military is not significantly different than in the civilian world. You have to communicate clearly. You have to hold people accountable. Uh, you have to generate. You have to generate respect. Uh, if people simply followed orders. Uh, very little would get done. It's always about getting that discretionary effort. I think Kevin Cruz coined that phrase. And I really like it, but that, that little bit extra. And when you do that and you do that through good communication, accountability, respect, you build trust and you get that little extra out of people. And I think movies are, are a big impediment to that. And then the other one is that the, the percentage of people with military experiences is, is quite frankly, really small. I think it's well under 2%, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And uh, so there's that lack of common, uh, common background, common experience. The thing I noticed from movies and TV shows and, and even just uh, it, factual history is we have definitely talked about and we really focus on some of the most remarkable leaders uh, if you think of like the show, like the band, band of brothers or the Pacific or things like that, right. I mean, they're so good, but like, how do you hold up yourself to captain winners? That guy, like just an absolute rock star, right? They're like the most perfect leader you can think of highly accomplished was just, that's not, that's not most people, right? Most of us are not this like, you know, top, top, top 
you know, human being leader all the time. And I'm sure, I'm sure that he had mistakes. I'm sure that he has, you know, things he would do differently, but you don't see that in a, you know, in a recapsulation of his life, you know? So, right. um, uh, in fact, I just watched saving private Ryan the other day. So, you know, Tom Hanks's character in that mm-hmm. one, right. It's the same kind of like this just perfect leader who they're not a perfect person, but yet they somehow always know what to do, what to say. And that may not be relatable, I think, to the average person in the business world, <laughs> you know, but, we're trying to figure it out. And when you talk about Dick Winters, who was an exemplary officer without question, I think what you're comparing him to is one of these wildly successful leaders in in the business world, such as uh, Jeff Bezos. Right. Not everyone is going to be like him, but there's a whole bunch of levels of success between where you are now and where where someone like he is. Right. So I love the Band of Brothers. I mean, that just that grabs your heart and and, and oh yeah, shakes you. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good, it's a good one. Well, let's talk about your work. I know one of the things that you uh, have sort of grabbed onto that you, you talk a lot about uh, is this idea of de-escalation. Can you talk about what that is and why that's important to you? Absolutely. And I will tell you before COVID came, I'd never really given much thought. So back in March, my, my daughter was a senior in high school and Sophia was, is a great kid, very smart, but she worked at a grocery store. And so COVID happened, the masks, the lockdowns, and all of a sudden she was on those front lines of, mm-hmm. of, of, the, of the COVID epidemic. And she was with very little guidance and zero training. She was said, hey, go up there at the front of the store, count people in. You know, you need, really need to encourage people to wear their masks. And so as a father, of course, you're concerned about your kid. And then you start seeing these viral videos of people, I call them mask bombs exploding, where people are just losing their mind over being asked to wear a mask. And so, you know, now mom and dad are like, oh, hey, our little girl's out there. Should we let her go to work or not? And so after getting over those first few minutes of panic, it occurred to me that so much of what I, you do in leadership training and development uh, can be packaged and is very relevant to that experience. So I started talking with Sophia, started talking about the importance of communication, started talking to her about the communication of body language, how important that is, and then emotional intelligence. And so a second ago, I said mask bomb, and I know some people don't like that term. And I use that because on my second tour in Iraq, I was part of a task force uh, trying to defeat roadside bombs, counter IEDs, what they call them. And we constantly struggled to get left of boom because once that bomb goes off, there's nothing left to do except clean up. But how can we interrupt that cycle before it goes there? It suddenly dawned on me, that's what we have to do. In the video, all you see is the explosion, the meltdown, the people erupting. What's going on up to then? And that's where I focus these efforts on de-escalation is reading the situation, reading the body language, taking action to manage that situation, dial down, that emotional volume before it gets out of hand. We don't know, we don't need to see what it looks like when a tornado hits a volcano, as Eminem says. We know that's a mess. What can we do to ward it off before that? And that's the whole focus of this training. Well, it sounds like you can take that lesson, right? And it's not just about COVID. You could take this to anything, right? Where, where else do we have big, our big frustrations? Where do we have meltdowns in our organization? Maybe with clients or vendors, right? And how do we get to that uh, situation almost sounds a little bit like, you know, I'm a big advocate for appreciative inquiry. And that's like, 
you know, in that uh, mind, we don't talk about problem solving. We talk about finding opportunities, you know? And so instead of client gets upset, instead of saying, well, how do I get you not upset anymore? Cause like you said, all we can do now is clean up conversation is, is tell me how this would work in a perfect world, right? Tell me how we, how, how do we move forward in our business together for this to be a better situation? And we end up recreating or redrawing those lines so that not only for them, but for other clients, you know, going forward. So it sort of sounds like a similar model, right? Where we're trying to trying to come up with a better way to do things, like you said, before that bomb goes out, before that frustration hits. So do you think this sort of really should be taken and, and, and pushed out throughout the other organizations into other topics as well? I do. And a big part of it is the times in which we are. Before COVID hit, people were stressed. We have a bitter political divide in the, in the nation right now, unfortunately. We have, people are always worried about the economy and their jobs. I know you're a huge advocate of technology and all it enables, but it stresses people out. The rate mm-hmm. of change stresses people to try and keep up a little bit. So what we're talking about is incorporating emotional intelligence in the workplace. I think it's especially critical when you're doing performance feedback for your employees, when you're, you're trying to help them grow. And even given with the best of intentions, when you catch that someone on a bad day and, and maybe they've had some other things going and you're not tuned in uh, to what they're going through, all of a sudden that situation can go radically sideways and be very unpleasant. So I think there's a lot of application in, in the performance feedback environment, which is part of our daily world that we live in in business. Customer service reps especially deal with some very uh, – difficult situations, if you will. Right. So yeah, I think there are quite a few applications across across the board. Well, I think this is, this will go well beyond COVID, which hopefully we're looking, we, we see a light at the end of the tunnel. We hope it's not an oncoming train, but uh, it looks like we're, we're cresting. And, and, and well, and we'll, we'll see. I mean, in California, we're, uh, we're about to, we, we've kind of taken a step backwards. So uh, we're now back in our purple range and more restrictions and all of that. So we'll it'll be interesting to see over the next two or three months, you talk about stress. There's going to be a lot of stress in the next two or three months, right? With, yeah. with everything going on right now in the United States. So, but anyways, you know, as far as this model goes, this is really fascinating to me and maybe to help people understand a little bit better. Uh, can you maybe talk about some of the, the deeper concepts inside of this de-escalation uh, approach, which I think, You've talked about anticipate versus fixate. Mm-hmm, so, can mm-hmm. you kind of can you kind of dive into those a little bit for our listeners? Absolutely, and I'll, I'll talk about it from two perspectives. And let's start with the customer. Somebody gets in their car and they say, "Hey, I'm going to go to the store and get some bread and milk." When they get in their car, they're not going and driving that grocery store under the mindset of, "Hey, I want to be the subject of a viral video today. I, I'm going to go lose my mind." and cause property damage and, and risk injury because I'm so frustrated. But as, they, as they're driving to wherever they're going, and, and this is not just in stores as well, but I know schools are, are encountering this and, and sometimes they encounter it routinely with unhappy parents. But that person starts focusing and anticipating what's gonna happen. So anticipation is good. That's where you're looking at what are the possibilities that might happen. But somewhere it crosses that line and becomes fixated. And once you fixate on something, now your body and your brain start reacting to that situation the way you have fixated, the way you've played that script out in your mind. 
This is what's going to happen. And when they say this, I'm going to say that. And when they do this, then I'm going to do this. And so what happens, your body goes into that automatic mode in that situation, regardless of the inputs that it's received, because you fixated on it. So fixation turns probabilities or possibilities into probabilities. This is going to happen. On the other side, when you're dealing, when you're walking into this possible situation, you, it's incredibly important that you anticipate what might happen. And, and I, I, I keep going back to the store because that's where it started. That's where I started looking at distance, my daughter, Sophia. You know, hey, that guy comes in, he's going to say this, he's going to do that. But what you do is you maintain, you've got to consciously pull back and you're not constantly repeating the same thing over and over again, like ruminative thought, I think is what psychologists call it. And you look at those possibilities and you say, okay, if this, then that. You run through those courses of action. But it's when that anticipation gets locked into a single groove as opposed to this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. That's where it becomes that very problematic. And the same thing on, on for a boss going to talk to an employee. And, and you know, sometimes employees are high strung. Sometimes they've been struggling. You know they're going through a difficult time. And that, that supervisor needs to consider the possibilities. But if they just get their mind locked into one mindset and lose that flexibility and stop listening and just say, this is the way it's going to be, that's where you cross into that fixation and that's where you have problems. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy once you fix it. Yeah, it's like this concept of the story we tell ourselves. So if we tell ourselves a story in advance, right, then we show up and then we do everything we can to make the story real. So, yes. You know, if, well said. If, if I think my father is going to be mad at me, then I show up and I'm already defensive and I'm already, you know, whatever. And because you're, you think he's going to be mad. And, and it's amazing how many times people surprise us. They don't do the thing we think they're going to do in our head, but so much better to just show up and not have a story and not assume you can prepare, right? You can say, I should be prepared for if they ask me questions, if they're angry, if they're, you could come up with logical things to be ready for a maybe difficult, what you perceive to be a potentially difficult conversation, but to assume that you know exactly how they're going to react, right? Puts you into that wrong mode. Absolutely. So yeah, it's, uh, it's it, easier said than done. It is. <laughs> it is. And that really plays into that, the, the part what I call doing your homework and that's the emotional intelligence yeah. piece of it. And it starts with understanding, not just knowing that you're sad or happy, but knowing what emotion. And when I say knowing, what I'm talking about is understanding why you feel that way and how it impacts you. Uh, so the idea that I skip breakfast and I go to work, you know, that hunger is gnawing at me down there and you're not starving to death. We got that. But what it does is that distracts your brain and that makes you more prone to impulses. It makes you more, you know, that's why you don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry, right? Your impulse control is lowered. Uh, so you, you grab those easy things at the checkout because you're hungry right now. Um, but in terms of dealing with a, an escalating situation, you know, that's one of the things that I talk about in this course is you have to make sure your, your biological needs are met in terms of, of hunger. You know, don't go to work hungry. Uh, if you have a, if you have a break, have a snack, right? Snickers made their whole advertising campaign campaign 
around being hangry, all identified with that. We know what that means. But once the hunger is satisfied, you're a different person. Same thing with sleep, uh, not getting enough sleep. I call about, I talk about being at your best. But that emotional intelligence part is knowing your emotions, knowing where you are, why you're there, and then being able to manage them to move you where you need to be to be at your best. And I think that's a critical portion. And, and again, I, I love that example you used about going home. I'm in trouble with that. I have four <laughs> kids. So <laughs> and that conversation on both sides as a, as a father and a, and a son. Yeah, but I think it starts with that emotional intelligence is to prepare yourself for that. Yeah, if you're the kind of person that spends their entire time in the shower, pre-having an argument with someone that hasn't even happened yet, you're definitely doing this. It's definitely really impacting your life, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's in, the trick to do that is you need to recognize you're doing it because we all do it. We all have that. Your mind can run a little bit or mm-hmm. get in an mm-hmm. emotional place. But if you can recognize it, it will pass. Um, and, and, and it takes practice to keep doing. But if you can do that, I have found for me, walking into conversations without that assumption that I know where it's going to go, man, I, do I get surprised about how, how differently it goes. Usually much better, sometimes worse, right? Because yep. you're not predicting. Um, but if it goes worse, you can always say, you know what? I'm going to need to come back and talk to you another time. You know, I, this is not what I was expecting. Let's, let's pick up and talk tomorrow. Um, and, and you, no one is stuck having to have a, most people aren't stuck having to have a conversation they weren't prepared for right then and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can always come back to it later. So, but that's, we're talking a lot of emotional intelligence here. We're talking a lot about EQ. So, you know, where do you see that fitting into the process of advancements inside of, you know, for careers and promotions and things like that? Where, where do we put that in the, I guess the, what we expect from our, our people compared to, you know, their, their tactical abilities or what we hired them to actually do, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where does that fit in? It's incredibly important. Great leaders have great emotional intelligence. It's, it's a challenge to train, but it can be done and you can get better. From an organizational perspective, uh, what leaders make a priority are, tend to be what that organization gets done, what that company gets done. And the leader has to, one, model it. So they have... I've, I've told leaders this hundreds of times. Your personal example is the single most powerful tool in your leadership toolbox. Um, so leaders have to work at it. And what they can do is, is start making those norms. Company meetings are a great place to start that. I like the idea of a check-in, and I know that has a lot of forms. But once you do that, you know where somebody's coming from. You know, someone checks in and say, wow, I'm really tired. You know, the baby was sick last night. I was up late. Now I know that they may be a little more edgy. They may be a little more cranky or prickly about things. And I can, I can take that into account, not excuse bad behavior, but the idea is emotional intelligence about working together to get done what needs to get done. Um, so I love those check-ins at the beginning of meeting. Leaders can step in that situation. When you see someone overreact to a minor thing and, and, and the guy blows his top and starts screaming, that's where you need to interject yourself, not only for decorum of the workplace, that's critically important, but then that becomes that emotional intelligence learning point as well. Yeah, that's a great exercise. And we've added onto that is just checking in at the beginning, but also checking out, right? How is everyone leaving the meeting? Because, and you tend to, that gets a bit more of an employee focused answer, whereas how are you showing up as a bit more of a human 
Mm-hmm. You know, me as the person, I, I have a baby at home. I've got a sick grandparent, whatever. But how are you leaving is I'm frustrated. I didn't feel like I was heard or I didn't understand the concepts here. I need more help or, you know, and so it can help the leader really figure out what they need. And the other thing I would add to that is that the leaders need to make sure they're going last. This is a military lesson, right? Leaders eat last in the military because that sets the tone. And so you need to go last in that check-in process because if you show up as the leader and say, boy, am I excited. This is the best day ever. And the rest of your team is upset and frustrated. They're going to hold their tongue and they're not going to share with you. That's right. You create that situation where they feel pressured. And I think you're exactly right about why the leader goes last at the end of the meeting. You know, if the leader goes first and says, hey, great meeting, we we crushed it. No one wants to ask a question then. Yeah. But when that leader holds back and, and pulls the wallflowers out, pulls everybody into the meeting, which should be done throughout, of course. No, I love that idea of the checkout. Great idea, yeah. Chris. Yeah. Well, great. We have two more quick questions for you before we go. And the first one is, is there a book that you are reading right now that you'll share with us? Or maybe one that you suggest we check out. Yes, I just finished last night. I just finished um, Kevin Cruz. I mentioned him earlier. Great leaders have no rules. Great book. I love the way he writes. It's very accessible. A little bit of a hyperbole in terms of no rules. I think his thinking is really, really sound. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I would recommend that. And I just started um, Speaking Secrets of the Masters, which is an older book and uh, by the Speaker's Roundtable. Uh, but I'm always looking to improve my, my public speaking skills as well. So yeah, two. Fantastic. And how can people get a hold of you? How can they find out more if they want to work with you? If they uh, want to follow you, maybe see the things you're, you're doing and you're, you're, you're big on, on uh, social media as well. And, mm-hmm. uh, so how do they do that? LinkedIn is probably the best way. I spend enormous amounts of time on LinkedIn. I love the platform. My website, mcmillionleadership.com. That's MC million, like a million dollars, mcmillionleadership.com. And I'm on Twitter, at Mark McMillian, 91. I say 91, that's when I graduated West Point. My wife says 91 because that's when we got married. But uh, it's an important year no matter why the reason, right? Those are the best ways. LinkedIn is the best. The website is excellent as well, but also Twitter. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Mark, so much for being on the show today. Thanks for always being a big support of, of the things we're doing over here. And uh, hopefully we have you come back at some point and give us an update on all the cool things that you're doing. Hey, I'd love to. I'm a fan. I love what you do, Chris. All right. Thanks, Mark. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to today's show. Hopefully you've gained something that you can use in your own career in a positive way. Until then, Do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio brought to you by People G2. 